Welcome, listeners, to the next edition of The Editor's Desk. I'm Rusty Reno, editor of First Things, at my desk, in fact. And today I have with me Mark Gottlieb, and we are discussing his piece, A Jewish Theology of Resurrection, in the November 2023 issue. Welcome, Mark. Thanks so much, Rusty. It's uh, very good to be with you. And, And Mark, you are... Chief Education Officer at the Tikva Fund. Uh, why don't, before we before we learn more about the Jewish theology of resurrection, just tell our listeners what is the Tikva Fund. <laughs> sure, the vast uh, you know right wing conspiracy. If only it was vaster. I, I yes, I wish we have a nice Jewish word halavai. I only wish it were so. Tikva is an ideas institution and think tank. We work with students as early as middle school and and really pushing younger. Even we have under our auspices and partnership, we have an immersion, a Hebrew language immersion school in Austin, Texas, with uh, first and second graders. Um, So that's that's the, the, the starting point of our journey with young Jewish students, and and then we work with them through the middle school years, through high school, college, gap year, young professionals, graduate students, and uh, we try to to cultivate a a leadership cohort for the next generation of uh, Jews in politics and Jewish thought and academia and in the rabbinate and education, journalism, just trying to educate uh, the best and brightest of our people to defend. Jewish ideas and Jewish life and Western civilization. Well, uh, may you move from strength to strength. Amen. Amen, my friend. <laughs> uh, Jewish theology of resurrection. Why don't we start really with the fact that uh, Christianity has to have something to say about Judaism, but Judaism doesn't really have to have, to have something to say about Christianity, does it? Well, traditionally, many Jews felt exactly as you've just described, that Judaism, because it predates Christianity, it's the source, both theologically and historically, of of the founding of Christianity, of, of some of its teachings, and certainly the Bible as a shared inheritance, that it doesn't really need to say much about a a daughter faith. In this case, Christianity, one could make a similar claim possibly about Islam. But I I think that that's short-sighted. And I think that that misses a larger question of what any faith should have a comprehensive account of reality, should have a comprehensive account of the world of being, of people, of things, of ideas, and certainly a faith that is the faith of billions of of humans on this planet, of, of so many people that share a a moral legacy Judaism should have something to say and not just in a in a halachic in a Jewish legal sense of whether you know this is a permissible form of worship for Gentiles which is a one of the dominant questions that you get in Jewish rabbinic literature through the centuries about Christianity but on a larger I would say philosophical or worldview perspective what should a Jew think about Christianity? Is this a development in in human history that we should feel advances the the human um, endeavor, the human 
engagement with the divine and with the world? Is it something that Jews should see common cause as a as a system of of beliefs and practices? And I don't think it's satisfactory on a human level, on a basic human level, to say, well, we don't have anything to say about, you know, a good 25% of the planet or or any, you know, for any faith for that matter. But I think Christianity and Judaism have a history that is, you know, more complex, uh, more intimate, uh, more fraught, more laden um, than Judaism has with other faiths. But it's the same basic question. How does a Jew look at other faiths with charity, with suspicion? Uh, and that is really the question that Pinchas Lapid, this little-known figure uh, that we, we try to uh, resuscitate, <laughs> resurrect, <laughs> no pun intended there, uh, but someone that um, really goes further than any Orthodox Jewish thinker that I'm aware of, uh, in in trying to understand Christianity as a a Jewish phenomena, biographically, I mean, who was this guy? Yeah, so Pinchas Lapid is one of these Jewish figures that is far better known amongst Christians than amongst his fellow Jews. Uh, his teacher, Martin Buber, a far you know more prestigious, far more prominent figure than Lapid, of course, is another such figure that. Is, is read more often and with greater uh, commendation than, than he is in Jewish circles. Lapid was born in 1922 in Vienna. Uh, he saw his father, who was a, a great patriot of Austria, basically be forced in the wake of the Anschluss in 1938 to clean the streets of Vienna with a toothbrush. He was you know, mocked and derided like so many Jews by the the Nazis and the anti-Semites that that were uh, in in Austria at that time. Uh, he gets interred in a German work camp on the Czech border, and miraculously he escapes. He's one of the few, one of the lucky ones who escapes from uh, from the the impending Holocaust. He makes his way eventually to England, uh, and then he moves in 1940 to British Mandate Palestine, where he fights uh, just a year later in General Montgomery's British Jewish uh, Battalion. Uh, he goes back to Vienna, finishes his gymnasium degree, and he, he becomes proficient in, in many European languages. He knew five or six European languages, including Italian, which served him well when he was a diplomat in in Italy, and and he had close relations to the to the Holy See, to the Vatican. A diplomat for the Israeli government. For the Israeli government, when which found itself, of course, in 1948, he he gets back to to Israel the year before Israel declares it's it's stated, and and he moves back in 47, and then he turns his attention to academia. He becomes uh, a scholar of of Jewish Christian relations, of Jewish Christian literature, of, of early early Christian history of the New Testament, with an eye specifically towards the the Jewish resonances, the Jewish sources in early Christianity and in in the New Testament. And then in the fifties and sixties, he he becomes a diplomat for the Israeli 
government, a kind of an ambassador, an aide to ambassadors. And this is where he begins um, his real encounter with with Rome, uh, Rome both as the capital of Italy, but Rome as the seat of the of the Roman Catholic Church. And this is where he begins to to think about the scholarship that would eventually become his um, his calling card in Jewish Christian relations and Jewish Christian uh, thought. Uh, he he gets his PhD eventually. He becomes a professor in Israel at Bar Ilan. He has an, also an appointment at the American University um, that's in Israel. And then he eventually moves in the mid-70s to Germany, where he remains for the, for the rest of his life. He, he passes away in 1997 in the town of Frankfurt am Main. And his wife and his son really continue this legacy of his, of Jewish-Christian dialogue, of Jewish-Christian relations, of Jewish-Christian scholarship. Uh, and Lapid remains this fringe figure, but a fascinating figure, really worth uh, studying for the even for the questions that he raises, uh, let alone the provocative answers that that he offers, which I, I suspect most Orthodox Jews would not go as far as Lapid goes. But uh, the kinds of questions that he raises about the place of Christianity and the place of the resurrection, specifically within a Jewish worldview, I think are, are fascinating and important questions for how Jews see themselves in relation to, to Christians, brothers and sisters within Western civilization. What an extraordinary life. Absolutely. And that's his life, even apart from his scholarship, is, is fascinating. Uh, <laughs> yes. And extraordinary proposal that he puts forward in the 1982 um, English translation, the 1982 book, The Resurrection of Jesus, A Jewish Perspective. And that you, you really helpfully walk us through. And as I see, they're really kind of two, they're two, well, three angles, maybe. The first angle is a meditation on, well, I guess it's the faith and reason question. Is that Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The second thrust is a reflection on, on Jewish, the way that the Hebrew Bible and the rabbinic tradition endorse uh, the notion of, um, of resurrection, or at least revivification, I would say, however one wishes to, because we'll get into the sense in which Lapid doesn't, does not, uh, um, affirm or endorse what the Christian idea of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, but anyways, let's, let's first, let's talk about, and then maybe the third element. Now I've forgotten what the third element is. I would say the third element, Rusty, is how his theological views are used in a kind of service or symbiosis with his views of culture and politics and the, what, what the relationship between Jews and Christians can mean on a civilizational level and why this is so important to see the resurrection as a part of Jewish salvational history and not merely as a heretical or a deviant type of um, genesis of, a, of, a, of an alien faith. Right. So I guess you could say that in the secular age, uh, Jews and Christians have a 
kind of common cause to defend the supernatural. And then we'll quarrel among ourselves as to the proper meaning of it. <laughs> well, let's let's talk let's just talk briefly about that faith and reason. He gives a very nuanced account, it seems to me, of the limits of what historical science, shall we call it, um, and the legitimate role of faith. Rabbi Soloveitchik, he he recognized that. Um, that there is a, a kind of that faith sort of, if you will, creates a world, um, and and at some point one has to take it seriously on its own terms, and you can't just dissect it from the outside. No, a- absolutely. I, I think Lapide is is by no means an irrationalist or an absurdist. You know, he believes that reason, and and he makes reasoned arguments from what he considers evidentiary. Uh, data for for the resurrection, but his major framing of of his of his investigation is that if you try to reduce the the miraculous to the purely reasonable, you're making a category mistake. That it it is miraculous precisely in the sense that it can't be empirically or scientifically, certainly not scientistically proven in a way that we would prove a mathematical argument or some basic data in, in science or in physics, that the, the whole realm of faith requires a, a kind of leap. Again, he's, he's not going to go the entire Kierkegaardian direction, but he is, he is very worried that modern man has reduced his world, has subjected his world to only that which is verifiable, only that which is concretely, scientifically provable. And it it makes for a, I think, a beautiful shared statement of faith for Jews and Catholics and Jews and Christians and Jews and members of any faith that believe that the supernatural that something that transcends or that is apart from the purely materialistic, the purely purely reductionist is significant and maybe is the most significant thing about our human lives. And, and that we make an error when we think that our faith has all the proof and your faith is devoid of the proof. Uh, you know, this, this whole discussion in Lapide recalled a short story of Philip Roth's. And Philip Roth, as you know, is no pious Jew, uh, certainly early Philip Roth, even less so than than the mature Roth. But he's got this wonderful short story uh, that takes place in a Hebrew school and these, you know, almost cliched Hebrew schools in the 50s and 60s that, you know, the teachers weren't particularly good they, they always came with some kind of baggage, spiritually, psychologically, and the students were very skeptical and, and subversive. And, and basically, the, the upshot of this little short story, it's a delightful short story, is that if God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, then God could do anything. And if you accept that premise, that there is a, a creator deity, a creator God, then who's to say that my belief 
in the durability of the Jewish people, which seems miraculous to me, is indeed a miracle. Who's to say that the Christian faith and the resurrection is outside the bounds of faith? You take as a premise the existence of a God who transcends nature, who, who inhabits nature, but also transcends nature. So all bets are off when it comes to a purely reductionist or a purely materialist account of reality. And that's how he begins yeah. his meditation on, on the resurrection as a kind of like, let's step back and see that the, the stakes are high, but the, the provability demand should not be equated with something that we would say is, is in the realm of, of science or mathematics or pure quantification. Right. Who are we to say what God can and cannot do? That's right. It's a hubris. That's where does where does salvation, God's salvation comes from God? And who is to say what the form or the specific shape of that salvation, you know, will take? He draws, Lapid draws out the convergence of Judaism and Christianity on this notion of resurrection or, or physical resuscitation. Elijah's resurrection, it's kind of the first and second kings. Elijah's re resurrection, Elisha's resurrection of the child of a wealthy woman, and then the unknown man who is revived through contact with Elisha's bones. So, uh, and then you have Enoch, who doesn't die but walks with God. So it's not as though this is an alien notion what Christian, Christians are teaching about Jesus. No, and, and in fact, if you wanted to be more bold and, and sort of more ambitious, go beyond the biblical account, beyond the biblical record to the Talmudic record, the rabbinic record, the modern day record. There are tales of resurrection that occur in, in the stories of holy men and holy women, uh, of, certainly in the Talmud, very famous, uh, you know, Babylonia, Amaraim, uh, have accounts of, of resurrection of the dead. We have uh, tales from the Baal Shem Tov and of Shmelka of Nicholsburg, who are, you know, 19th century, 17th century, 18th century figures that still we have stories and tales and, and there's a Jewish tradition of, of resurrection that is embodied in our daily prayer, Rusty. We, we Jews, we say three times a day in our, prayer in our Amidah, our Shemona Esrei, our standing supplication, we implore God to resurrect the dead, and we expect the, that God will resurrect the dead. That is a belief of faith codified by Maimonides. So, of course, resurrection is not per se alien to, to the Jewish faith. It's an integral, one might even say, a necessary uh, theological doctrine. Of, of Judaism, as much as sort of the more liberal and progressive uh, forms of Judaism in, in the 19th and 20th centuries wanted to distance themselves from resurrection. It was too carnal. It was too material. It was too unscientific. In traditional Judaism, resurrection occupies a central space. Psalm 68, and you, you um, Lapid, um, quotes this, our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belongs escape from death. So I think it runs like a, a, a leitmotif through the Bible as a whole, the notion that 
um, sin and death are not our natural condition, but rather, and God will deliver us from, you know, and then Christians and Jews argue about exactly how God is going to affect this end. <laughs> right, right. Well, let's turn to that because um, uh, the, the, I mean, as I was reading your your piece, and I don't know, uh, Lapid had engaged both Jürgen Moltmann and, and Hans Kung, and I've not read their back and forth, so I don't know what the Christians had to say. But in my own thinking, the big difference is that in the, the Christian view is that sort of we are incorporated into Jesus, and so his revivification is ours, so to speak. Um, and it's the basic messianic role, so to speak, which, which suggests that, of course, Jews and Christians are going to disagree about that aspect of Jesus' resurrection. Well, they're going to disagree about two things. In, in my conversations with Christian friends, when, when I share the Lapid thesis, most often they're just intrigued, frankly, that the fact that an Orthodox Jewish thinker could entertain and, and even conclude that, that the resurrection of Jesus on the third day is a historically veridical event. That, that usually is enough to create you know, seismic waves of, of, of shock and, and, you know, and, and disbelief. But when, when you dig a little deeper, the differences, I think, between Orthodox Christian accounts of, of the resurrection, and I would put the death and the resurrection in a relational sense, you know, atonement and resurrection, I think the the things where where Lapid would part company from traditional Christian teaching is that a Jesus was not the Messiah, which is of course, you know, perhaps the most significant question where Jews and and, and Christians will will part company because Lapid's argument is that there's nothing about Jesus's resurrection that necessarily implies messiahhood. In fact, by you know the Jewish criteria of of the messianic era and and God's kingdom on earth Jesus did not fulfill those promises those prophetic promises of a of a of a of a erasure of of sin of a realm of a kingdom of goodness of of a redemption of the Jewish people politically so those things you know did not occur and you know on a simple straightforward reading that would be enough for a Jew to say well, I cannot affirm Jesus' messiahship. But on the question of the resurrection, I get from my, my thoughtful, learned Christian friends, the, the pieces about atonement, that in, in, in the Christian account, the death of Jesus plays a significant theological role, whereas in Lapid's account, it doesn't. It's the death of a martyr. It's a, it's a tragic death. It's the tragic human death of another Jewish martyr that lived in the Roman, you know, the Roman proctorate and suffered like so many thousands of Jews suffered through history at the hands of, of evil oppressors. And the second related feature is that the resurrection is more of a transfiguration and not merely a bodily resurrection, that there is something theologically more expansive about the resurrection of Jesus in Christian accounts than what Lapid is, is willing 
to entertain. Lapid says he was resurrected for the purpose of founding the Christian faith, which would go on to convert the pagan world into a mosaic world. And that is the historical theological crux of Lapid's argument, that the, the, the conviction and the success of the apostles rests with the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. And since Lapid sees Christianity as a extremely um, ameliorative development, a, a, an extremely edifying development, a, a, a providentially driven element in world history, he's comfortable giving the resurrection that force and that legitimacy as a historically vertical event to have been the basis for the wildly successful work of the apostles uh, in those immediate decades and generations after the death and, and resurrection. So I guess that you could summarize that for Lapid, I mean, Maimonides holds the view that God providentially God providentially allows for Christianity to flourish in order to, um, to, to bring, if you will, the biblical frame, uh, the biblical frame of reference to become the dominant frame of reference in the West. Yes, Maimonides does say that, but two, I would say two um, caveats or, or two important qualifications. Maimonides also says that Christianity theologically is considered avodah zara, which is a halachic term, a term of art for foreign worship, which is illegitimate worship for a Jew to worship. The question is, he also most likely, Maimonides most likely, most likely believed that that was also the case for a Gentile as a form of worship. There are other rabbinic thinkers in, in Orthodox Jewish history that believe that Christianity is not a form of idolatry for Gentiles. In other words, for, the, for a Jewish person that has this direct covenantal relationship with God, with the one God of, of the Bible, with the one God of the Hebrews, then having a Orthodox Trinitarian doctrine would be considered a vodazara for a Jew. But for a non-Jew, for a Gentile, all the people that were converted by the apostles and by you know Paul and 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 subsequent martyrs, if they are Gentile, then there is no prohibition of having a Trinitarian conception of God as a Gentile, that's not considered a deviation from monotheism. That's not considered a, a change in, in the basic Jewish requirement that all Gentiles worship the one God. You could say that um, for Maimonides, it's a God out of, out of, out of evil, God has created something, has, has affected a good. So out of the evil of this false form of worship, the good has actually, God has orchestrated it in such a way that good may come of it. Others say that, no, 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 it's not evil. It, it's good in its own way. And it seems to me Lapid takes that a step further and makes it more precise. And this way I would summarize what he says on the basis of your essay. He says that God raises Jesus from the dead in order to inspire his followers to spread their message. And is that message false, a false message? Well, Lapid, certainly the way it's ramified in Christian theology, he would obviously reject it in that sense. 
it's false. But um, but it, it is an interesting sort of making more precise this notion that God providentially sparks the Christian movement because he's he's specifying that it's perfectly reason or perfectly reasonable from a Jewish perspective that God would do so by by revivifying a dead man and and ensuring that the tomb is empty so to speak yeah I think it's Lapide's basic conviction that God cares about the billions of people on this planet that worship as Christians and that this is an a, a redemptive development in the history of salvation that Christianity brings the word of, of God, Moses's teachings, the words of the prophets, the moral founding of that's based on the Decalogue, but that is amplified in, in Jewish tradition, that Christianity successfully brings this to the masses of previously pagan peoples that didn't have the same, not nearly the same, you know, ethical assumptions not Christianity transforms the world. You look at scholarly studies on on sexuality and the the idea of the human person. These were revolutionary steps in in a process of uh, of of advancing commitment to the teachings and traditions of the Bible and to a faith in one God. And that has to be providential, Lapid argues. And he goes further than anybody prior in the Jewish tradition by saying that even the resurrection, which normally you know you would think a Jew would cower at, can that you know that can't that can't be because that ipso facto means that Jesus is the Messiah or that Jesus is a God. Lapid says no, you have to distinguish between these elements. We have to separate and disentangle the miraculous nature of the resurrection because the without the resurrection, the the Christian faith could not have succeeded in the in the wildly successful and, and wildly um, powerful way that it did in those early centuries in in the first millennium. And that is enough for Lapid to say, let's look at the evidence. And if the evidence seems credible, I can make a case. And I'm willing to, to say that this is likely to be historically true, because without the history, we'd just be essentially a saying that phantasms or or wish fulfillment created this successful movement. And that he thinks is illogical. That is, he thinks is unscientific. And not just that, but it 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 denies it denies God's providence in in the affairs of the world. Uh, it it does as as we said at the outset, there is a in a in a in an, in an enchanted world, it doesn't seem as though Jews and Christians have all that much in common. In fact, on the contrary, our differences become, you know, they become very decisive in the minds of most. But in a disenchanted world, uh, we can seem to have a great deal more in com- common insofar as we believe in the miraculous uh, than in. So there is maybe a providential blessing in living in a disenchanted age. Yeah, it creates more opportunities for fellowship and friendship between Jews and Christians. And I think that's vital. That's vital, as you say, Rusty, in today's day and age, when we live in a disenchanted world and, and we're living in in the, the fumes, we're living off of the fumes of our Judeo-Christian civilization, 
uh, this this battle will become even more decisive when it comes to the political realm. I mean, just look at the world around us today. We don't have to spend much time on it, but look at at what we see in in universities and college campuses and capital cities across the West. This the sense that the Jew doesn't have a place in civilization. The Jew is is an alien, and it's precisely now when Jews and Christians who see a shared a shared legacy. I, I spent a couple of days in Steubenville, Ohio, a few weeks ago. This mm. just remarkable event. This this conference, Jews and Catholics in a time of rising anti-Semitism, reflecting on Nostra Aetate, and it was very powerful, Rusty, to see the the witness of so many. Cat. This was mostly Catholics, but there were some Protestants. The Philos Project. My my friend um, Rob Nicholson. It was so inspiring, but at a very substantive level, not the kind of ecumenical, wishy-washy, oh, we're all we're all praying in the same way or we're all the children of the same God. I think that that's quaint and that's I'd rather have that than than the kind of barbaric tribal wars that we that we were always on the wrong end of, frankly, as Jews. But I think we could have a richer, subs, more substantive conversation around figures like a Lapid, whether you agree with them or you disagree with them. He raises these essential questions of providence, of history, of the supernatural. I mean, as a, a kid, I loved movies about exorcisms because I thought that if you could be moved by an exorcism, there was something that was universal. It wasn't the fact that this priest was using Latin and, you know, and, and invoking a Roman rite that was very particular. It was that there is this, the realm of the spirit that underlies all of the, the material physical world. And there are stories of Jewish exorcisms. There are stories of Islamic exorcisms. This is the divide, supernaturalism versus pure naturalism. And I think that's where Jews and, and Christians and, and Muslims of good faith um, can find common cause in a world that is becoming much more disenchanted, much more uh, alien and I, I would say distant from from its traditional roots. Well, uh, I'm grateful for your efforts to to build that uh, with a coalition of the faithful. Uh, yes, co- coalition of the miraculous, however we want to characterize it. I think it's much needed in our time. Well, thank you for your time, Mark. And, and also thank you for this wonderful essay, Jewish Theology of Resurrection, November 2023 issue of First Things. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks so much, Rusty. Thanks again. Be well.